Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. It's my pleasure to be joined by Dr. Chris Palmer, who uh, wrote the book uh, Brain Energy, which is excellent. It has a kind of a unifying theory of mental illness in there, which is really unique. Um, rather than today's interview kind of uh, being about going over that you know, large body of work, it's it's going to be more targeted for the audience that watches this channel, which is uh, people coming off psychiatric medications and maybe people with brain injuries, um, neuropathic problems, uh, you know, sensory problems following uh, 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 drug use. So, um, Chris, I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you so much for agreeing to come along. And, um, and I'm just going to launch right into it. I mean, how do you think about... Um, you know, your, your theory of brain energy and, and how it informs, um, I guess, uh, helping people go, go through withdrawal. You know, if, if, if it has been identified that maybe a medication is now kind of turned on them and it needs to come off and it's challenging, um, what do you think is the best way to integrate, you know, brain energy and all of that into helping these patients succeed? You know, the, I would say, the first step is understanding at a very detailed level what exactly is causing symptoms. And, and so the, I actually like to get very granular, um, like all the way down to the cellular level. And if somebody is having symptoms, they can usually be lumped into one of two categories. Um, and, uh, those categories, and I'm talking about abnormal symptoms. So I'm not talking about normal human suffering. I'm not talking about people getting anxious when they face anxious, you know, situations, anxiety-producing situations. I'm not talking about people experiencing depression when they just lost a loved one. All of those are normal human responses, and I'm not talking about those. Um, what I'm talking about are people who are having quote unquote, mental symptoms um, or psychiatric symptoms or neurological symptoms. And it, as a rule of thumb, those symptoms can be lumped into actually probably three categories. And the three categories are that either nerves or pathways in the brain are overactive or hyperexcitable. And that means that people are experiencing sensations or experiences that they should not be experiencing. So a couple of easy examples. Somebody who is sitting in the comfort of their home, not thinking anything stressful or anxiety producing, but out of the blue has anxiety or a panic attack for no reason. That would be a hyper excitable anxiety pathway or anxiety cell. Another category are underactive brain functions. So this is when people should be able to do something, but they can't. So you should be able to remember something, but you can't. You should be able to sit still and pay attention for five minutes, but you can't. You should be able to whatever. Um, and then the third category are absent um, brain functions. 
So, and this typically occurs in people who have neurodevelopmental or neurodegenerative disorders. And this is when people are unable to do things in a permanent fixed way um, that they should be able to do. So for example, some people with on the autism spectrum might have trouble interpreting social cues. That doesn't wax and wane day to day. They don't have good days and bad days for social cue interpretation. It is a permanent fixed trait. It is who they are. It is how their brain is hardwired. Um, likewise, people with Alzheimer's disease or other neurodegenerative diseases can have permanent deficits in function. So that latter category, these permanent deficits are going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to change because they represent either brain cells or networks that have died in neurodegenerative disorders, or they represent brain cells or networks that never developed, quote unquote, in a normal way, um, and they represent neurodevelopmental abnormalities. And unfortunately, right now, based on everything I know, I don't think we can undo that today. Someday, maybe with stem cell therapies or other regenerative processes, maybe we'll be able to do something. And so I want to focus back on those other two categories, overactive brain cells or underactive brain cells. I actually believe we can do a tremendous amount for those things. But again, the first step is understanding biology of what would drive, what would drive a brain cell to be overactive or what would drive a brain cell to be underactive? Interestingly, it's similar things. And at the end of the day, I'm arguing that we need to understand metabolism and mitochondria in order to answer that question. Um, and if people do a deep dive into the science of metabolism and mitochondria, we can understand all of the different factors that can play a role and they include things like diet, exercise, stress, sleep, inflammation, hormones, all sorts of things, vitamin and nutrient deficiencies, all sorts of things that can play a role. If people understand this big picture, they can actually systematically go through different interventions and try to create a path to healing. And if I can ask, so, so most of the withdrawal states either the acute ones and also the protracted ones, which tend to behave more like, you know, a, just a chronically excitable uh, uh, neurologic system with, with neuropathic pain and such. I mean, these sound like hyper excitable states. And so um, if someone like that kind of walked into your office, uh, tell us, you know, I think you kind of touched about it, kind of walk us through, I mean, the type of things that you might suggest to someone who has this very hyper excitable state you know, then let's take medications out of the equation. You know, maybe they're not on any, they're not on Adderall or Wellbutrin or other drugs, which may be also excitable in some degree, but they've kind of, they've come off the drug and they're still in this really excitable state. How, how do you kind of, yeah, how do you, how do you treat them clinically? What are the, what are the low hanging fruits? Like what, what's your kind of process in helping them kind of bring that level of ex excitability down? I think the, um, the first step is to identify factors that we can identify. And it's not 
not complicated voodoo science. I'll, I'll walk you through some of the things that, but I just want to walk you through this process. I'm, I'm, I'm going to outline three steps. Step one, identify all of the factors that are likely contributing to poor metabolic health in those cells. Step two, address those. That means try to reduce those, mitigate them as much as possible. It's not always possible. Nobody's perfect. Nobody is in utopia, living the high life, being pampered in every way we possible. But we're going to try to mitigate them as much as possible. For some people, at least, that may be enough to result in healing. If it's not, then the third strategy or the third phase is to then employ treatments that we know that can improve mitochondrial health in cells. Because if we can improve mitochondrial health in cells, we might be able to restore the normal function of those hyperexcitable cells. Um, and so I'll walk you through just kind of a broad outline of, so step one, what are some of the factors that can interfere with mitochondrial function or metabolic health? I'm going to look at diet. We're going to look for a quote unquote generic healthy diet. What does that mean? It means a diet that is composed primarily of real whole foods does not have high glycemic index. You're not going to be eating, you're not going to be consuming many added sugars or artificial sweeteners. We're going to try to eliminate as many chemicals, processed ingredients, additives, all of those things as possible. So again, it's not rocket science, not magic. It's just real whole foods as much as possible. Um, the second thing I'm going to look at is sleep. Diet and sleep are the two huge buckets of activity. So if somebody is not sleeping well, their body will not heal, period, end of story. And a lot of the, the people that I see are not sleeping well. Sleeping well means sleeping through the night for at least seven to eight hours, waking up and feeling rested. And that means sleeping without the use of any substance. So no sleeping pills, no over-the-counter sleeping pills, no marijuana, no alcohol, no substances. You can sleep on your own for seven to eight hours. Now, I can already hear the patients or the, the clients, the people that you're talking about, I can already hear them yelling at me. But Dr. Palmer, I have pain. Don't tell me that I'm supposed to be able to sleep for seven to eight hours in excruciating pain all night without my marijuana or without my pain pills or without my sleeping pills or without whatever. I, Don't I was gonna, tell me that. I was going to say You're... the same thing. I was going to say, if you've figured out how to do that, we need to we need to spend the, all all this time talking about that because that that has that has evaded me. So tell me, how do you, how do you get people to sleep? Um, um, especially that yeah. is so 
Here's the deal. It is possible. What I'm telling you, what I tell patients now, if you truly have the goal of healing, if you really want to get better, if you really want to put these symptoms into full and complete remission and allow your body to heal, there is no ambiguity. There are no ifs, ands, or buts. This must be your goal. If you refuse to make it a goal, I'm going to just tell you now, you are not going to heal. End of story. And I would let people know, if you're interested in getting better, this has to be a goal. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying we're going to do it overnight. I'm not even saying we're going to do it in six months. It may be a journey. It may be a long process, but it must be your goal. I'm not going to let people talk themselves into, but I deserve my oxycodone. I deserve my marijuana and I deserve my sleeping pill at night because I'm in pain. What I'm telling you is those substances and the lack of normal sleep are impairing your ability to heal. You are stuck in a vicious cycle. And there is no way out of that vicious cycle unless you can get to normal, healthy sleep. So then I'm next, I'm going to look at what I just alluded to. I'm going to look at all of the substances that people are using <clears throat> that they think they need that are likely impairing their mitochondrial function and impairing their metabolism. And that includes alcohol, marijuana, all sorts of over-the-counter pills, um, prescription medicines, supplements. When people come to me with a list of 20 vitamins, supplements, herbs, and other things that they're taking to try to heal, usually one of my goals is to get them off all of those pills as well. Um, because the human body is not made to be run on pills. The human body is made to be run on real things like food and oxygen and good sleep and relationships and exercise and sunlight and basic common sense, natural things. So those three, diet, sleep, substances, those are the huge category. For a lot of people, though, especially if they've had chronic symptoms, if they've been ill for a long time, I may want to do a pretty comprehensive assessment. Please start with a basic assessment of general metabolic health. So I'm going to look at liver function, kidney function, blood counts, inflammatory biomarkers, insulin levels or glucose levels. I'm looking for signs of insulin resistance because if people have high levels of insulin resistance, that is a sign that they are metabolically impaired and then we can come up with strategies to address them. Um, I might be looking for hormonal dysregulation or hormonal imbalances, thyroid hormone, testosterone, estrogen and progesterone in women uh, and other kind of hormone levels. Those are the big ones. Um, I do might you, be looking do you for. A, do you ever supplement them, or do you mainly look at them for 
I guess as being maybe signs of metabolic, you know, inefficiency, you know, inefficiency in the body. I'm going to first understand, I'm going to do my best to try to understand what's causing them. So if somebody has low thyroid hormone, the most common cause of that is a disorder called Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disorder um, attacking the thyroid gland, and that means they don't have enough thyroid hormone. That person, at least early on in treatment, that person is almost definitely going to need thyroid hormone supplementation. There's almost just no way around it. Yes, we can introduce dietary interventions and other interventions that might, for some people, make a difference in that. But once it's started, it's unlikely that I'm going to come up with a natural remedy to get rid of their autoimmune disorder. Um, And again, I know there are professionals who talk about getting rid of autoimmune disorders using diet and supplements and other things. Um, But at least to start the process, I'm going to try to balance the hormones. Same with testosterone in a male. With women, it gets more complicated with women, honestly, because birth control pills, for instance, some women will think that's balancing their hormones, but in fact, you're not getting the normal levels, you're not getting the normal fluctuations. And the large studies that we do have suggest that birth control pills associated with higher rates of mental disorders and suicides um, in women than women who do not use birth control pills. So with women, it gets much more complicated in terms of estrogen and progesterone. But um, nutrient deficiencies, similar deal. Usually those can be corrected with diet, not always. There's a thing called pernicious anemia, where people can have an autoimmune disorder again, that renders them unable to absorb vitamin B12, that person needs vitamin B12 injections. There is no better treatment for it than that. Vitamin B12 injections, because their stomach doesn't allow for absorption of B12. If somebody has B12 deficiency, make no mistake, they can develop pretty much any mental symptom, depression, anxiety, hallucinations, delusions, They can develop chronic pain. They can develop a demyelinating disorder of their nervous system. They can develop symptoms of dementia. And the only treatment for that is replacement of B12. If that is not identified and corrected, that person will go on to live a miserable life and probably die of vitamin B12 deficiency. So so with some of these things, it becomes black and white. No dietary intervention is going to correct that because, again, the person can't absorb the B12. Um, And no other intervention, pills or otherwise, are going to address it because the human body needs B12. So let um, let me stop there. I mean, because we could talk about other cases where people have chronic inflammatory reactions, chronic infections, long COVID, um, all sorts of other toxoplasmosis, all sorts of other kind of things. Those start getting more rare, Um, although long COVID nowadays is not so rare. But uh, um, let me stop there. 
Yeah, let me, let me kind of jump in. I like I love the framework, you know, in terms of how you how you broke it down and at least how you you approach each case. So I'm going to, so going going back to sleep. Just want to touch on this one. So, you know, especially for people coming off benzodiazepines, God, you know that that's um you know that's that's challenging. So, you know, if they've done C, you know CBTI and the other kind of psychotherapeutic interventions, <laughs> am I right? in – I mean, is your approach just generally to tell them, hey, you need to trust your body, your body will resume natural sleep, this needs to be a priority, and and, and there's 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 no shortcuts, really. Like, that's just – and you kind of have to just wait for it to naturally happen, and that's your – it's got to be a priority for you. So the – yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk about sleep hygiene, sleep schedule, so they have to be on a regular sleep schedule – I'm going to really push light therapy in the morning. So if you live in a location where you can go outside and get bright sunlight every morning, that is great. And if that fits into your schedule and routine, even better. However, if that does not, if that's not realistic, I happen to live in Boston, so it's not realistic in the winter. Um, So if you're like me and you live in a place where we have blizzards and freezing cold and it's not even light out when you wake up, then you might, I'm, I'm, I'm going to encourage those people to invest in a light box, a 10,000 lux therapeutic light box and start using it every morning that will help train their circadian rhythm. That will increase the probability that their sleep will eventually normalize. But again, it really depends on who I'm working with. If they really are drinking alcohol and using marijuana and using sleeping pills, we've got a many months process already. It's going to be hard to get them off all of those substances. If I take them off all quickly, their sleep is going to be a disaster. I already know that. They probably know that. So we need to slowly but surely wean them off in a safe, tolerable way. And then if we really get there, a lot of people will say, oh, I've tried that sleep hygiene thing. Well, here's the deal. The ultimate sleep hygiene thing or CBTI is sleep restriction. The majority of human beings have not tried sleep restriction. And when I describe sleep restriction to them, they're like, there's no way in hell I'm going to do that. So, but but that that is the nuclear option if needed to get your sleep under better control. And what sleep restriction is, is you're going to calculate how many hours, how many pathetic, tiny hours you think of sleep you're getting every night. And then you are going to brutally limit your access to bed for only that many hours per night on a regular basis. So if you if you tell me after logging your sleep that you're only sleeping for two hours a night, then we are going to work on a plan where you only get two hours in bed every night. And otherwise you need to be out of that bed. And we're gonna train your body to sleep for that two hours while it's in bed. And then we're going to work up to two and a half hours and then three hours and then four hours and then six hours and then eight hours. 
And the reality is the human body is desperately craving sleep. It is a normal, hardwired physiological drive. There is no denying it. It's like, it's like breathing. Nobody has to think about breathing. It will happen whether you think about it or not. Because um, otherwise you'll die. And a similar thing is happening with sleep. The problem is that humans, modern humans in particular, do everything in our power to sabotage our sleep. And um, so there are a lot of other things to sleep hygiene. You can't have cell phones in your bed. You, you need to unplug. You need to limit your caffeine use. You need to do all sorts of other things. So I'm not going to take the time to go through all of those things. But if somebody implements all of these steps and they're really not getting better, then and then we do sleep restriction, their sleep will, in fact, get better. It just will, because your body won't have an option. It will have to sleep for the amount of time that you are allowed to be in bed. Now, most people don't want to do that. Painful. It is horrible. It's painful, brutal. But if somebody's coming to me saying, I have permanent neurological damage, then I'm going to ask them, how, how badly do you want to get better? Mm -hmm. If you really want to get better, we have to get you sleeping without substances for at least seven or eight hours every night. Because you don't have a chance of healing your nervous system if you're not sleeping. Well, well said. So, um, um, a couple, you know, I'm, there's so many things I want to ask you about. So now I'm going to kind of prioritize it. Before I read your book and before I kind of talk to you, people think of you as like a keto doctor, you know, try keto for, you know, mental health. But, you know, you talk about, you know, this very balanced kind of whole food diet. And so, you know, what, what are the um, situations where you do advocate for a more keto style diet with, you know, you know, measuring ketones and, and those types of things? What, what are the conditions where you would go for something that's not this more kind of whole food diet and then, yeah, something more uh, keto? Ketogenic diet, in my mind, is in that third bucket that I describe. So if we identify all of the problems and we address all of the problems to the best of our ability, and the person is still having symptoms, then I want to use a ketogenic diet. Sometimes I'll jump to a ketogenic diet way before. So for people who are desperate to feel better now, for people who have crippling symptoms such as hallucinations or delusions or chronic unrelenting pain. Um, and they, they're like, give me the big guns now. I don't have time for this methodical kind of holistic approach. I, I don't want that. Just give me the big guns today. Then I might start with a ketogenic diet. <laughs> so then the reason is, so why would a ketogenic diet work? So, Big thing is, although a lot of people know the keto diet as a fad diet, some people know it as a dangerous diet. American Heart Association does not like this diet. So you may have heard it's a fad, dangerous diet. Don't do keto. 
the reality is that is all propaganda from organizations that do not like the ketogenic diet. The ketogenic diet is one of the best studied dietary patterns for type 2 diabetes and controlling blood glucose levels. That comes from the American Diabetes Association. The ketogenic diet has dozens of randomized controlled trials for weight loss published in the best medical journals that we have available today. It is in fact an evidence-based treatment for weight loss. That is not a fad. That is not dangerous. Researchers measured safety of the diet in all of those trials. And across the board, the diet was just as safe, if not safer, than comparison diets. So the ketogenic diet is an evidence-based treatment for weight loss, type 2 diabetes. And in fact, as a psychiatrist, I'm most interested in its use in epilepsy. It is a 100-year-old intervention. It was developed 100 years ago by a physician to stop seizures. And that is really important to this scenario that we're talking about. These people who are having mental symptoms, lingering mental symptoms, whatever they might be, and or people who are having chronic pain. Why is that important? Because we use epilepsy treatments for those conditions all the time in tens of millions of people. And when epilepsy medications fail to stop seizures, this diet can sometimes work and be extraordinarily powerful. And so we have a lot of rigorous science to tell us that this diet can heal the brain and or reduce symptoms of brain dysfunction in thousands of people who participated in controlled trials. So we know that um, this diet does a wide variety of things to reduce hyperexcitability of neurons. Um, and improve the function of underactive neurons. And so there's lots of reasons, and we can get into the science if you really want to, but uh, I'll stop there. No, I want to go with the practicality because, you know, in preparing for this, I watched like, um, you know, a number of presentations that you've done and, you know, people, I think one of them, you, you know, they talk about what people think the ketogenic diet is and then what it really is. And then there was like an image of like a plate that had like two syringes of oil on it or something like that. So I, I want to talk about like the levels of the ketogenic diet and like how in your clinical practice, like when you decide to bring out the big guns, you know, for someone like, uh, are they, are they syringing like, you know, oil into their mouth? Are they going full keto, you know, like full intense, like we're going to measure like ketones in, in your urine and things like that. I, I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, so picture is there are numerous versions of the ketogenic diet. So a lot of people think of the ketogenic diet is like steak and bacon, and that's all you eat. Um, and some people, that is what they're doing, and they that is ketogenic for them. But the ketogenic diet can be a vegan ketogenic diet. It can be a vegetarian ketogenic diet. It can be an omnivore or a carnivore diet, meaning both plant and animal source foods and or all animal source foods. So there's a whole spectrum of what the ketogenic diet can be. So let me start there. There's also numerous food choices across different cultures. So you can have a 
um, Latinx flair to your meal choices. You can have an Asian influence. You can have a Western influence. You can all sorts of different types of food choices, depending on spices and the foods that you're choosing. So that's the most important thing. The next step is that it really depends on the person who's doing the diet. So usually when my goal is ketosis, and if it's somebody who has a serious mental disorder or neurological disorder, I am looking for high levels of ketones in the blood. If they can afford a blood ketone monitor, I encourage them to get one. And I'm looking for ketones greater than 1.5 millimole per deciliter. Um, so the meter will give you a number. We're looking for 1.5 to like four, um, if you can get there. And what do different people need different diets in order to get there? That's the bottom line. If somebody is already taking medication, many medications can interfere with ketosis, antipsychotics in particular can interfere with the production of ketones. They're raising your blood sugar. They're raising your insulin levels. Those are fighting against the effects of the ketogenic diet and what the ketogenic diet is trying to do for your body and brain. Um, so if you're on antipsychotics, you're fighting an uphill battle. I'm just going to let you know that now. If, um, if a person is obese, it's actually really easy to get them into ketosis because they have so much adiposity or fat on their body. And we're going to tap into that. We're going to use that fat to get them into high levels of ketosis. Now, one of the benefits of that is that most people will lose weight. And that's if somebody's obese, it's usually one of their goals. They're like, hey, isn't this a weight loss diet? While we're, while we're addressing my neuropathic pain or my mental symptoms, let's lose some weight too. And that's easy to do. The more challenging situation is somebody who is thin. So somebody who's thin, it's going to be harder to get them into ketosis. And that means in order to get those ketone levels, those high ketone levels, they need low levels of carbohydrates and high levels of fat. Um, and that's the person that I am going to be encouraging add MCT oil to your coffee or just take a tablespoon or two of MCT oil once a day, twice a day, three times a day, if you can tolerate it. Um, so that's the person that I'm going to have drinking oil um, along with eating, you know, high fat meals um, but it, it's a range. Yeah. And, um, from in your experience, how long does it, I don't even know if you can answer this, you know, after someone kind of gets into ketosis, how, how long does it usually take to notice benefits? If that is, you know, the, the problem that that's, that's causing their symptoms, what do you see in your practice? Is it like, you know, a week after they start the diet? Is it like a couple months after? What, what, where does it generally fall from, from what you're saying? So if it's somebody who has a 
serious mental health or neurological problem, I usually tell them, I want you to give the diet at least three months before you make a decision. Um, and the three months is two for two reasons. One is that for some people, it can take that long to get the clinical benefits. The other reason I say three months is because when somebody is doing the diet in the first month, they will often feel like they cannot sustain this diet for life or even for a, a year or two. It will feel too hard. They will be intensely craving carbohydrates and foods that they used to love. And it will feel like life is absolutely, utterly miserable without this food. I would rather have chronic pain than give up all of my delicious foods. And so I usually have this long conversation with people and I let them know this is coming. You are going to experience this. You are going to think this. And I'm here to help you get through it. And I need you to start preparing yourself to get through it. And I need you to talk to all your family and friends, anybody who's going to support you on this journey, talk to them and let them know. A week from now, I'm probably going to be begging for a bagel or ice cream or something else that I can't have. And you're going to get me through that. You're going to help me white knuckle it through that. You're not going to let me give in. The reason I say three months is because when people get to that three month mark, people who are telling me at week two or week four, I'm sick of this diet. I hate it. Life is miserable. I'm done. I'd rather be dead than do this diet. I have people say extreme things like that. If I can get them to three months and the diet works for them and they're actually feeling better, at the three-month mark, their cravings have completely vanished, usually. And that is when people will say, oh my God, I didn't know I could feel this good. This feels impossible. Like, I didn't think that I could ever think this clearly or be this pain-free or have this much energy or be this motivated or have my mental symptoms go away, have my hallucinations or delusions or unrelenting depression or suicidality or crippling OCD. I didn't think it was possible for it to go away and it's going away. And this diet isn't as hard as I thought it would be. Like, it's not that hard anymore. I haven't had my, my, the foods that I thought I couldn't live without, I haven't had them in three months. And the way I feel is so much better that I think I can do this longer term. Um, I love that. Um, another thing that you, you bring up in your book and I want to ask you about is, do you have people, maybe especially people who are overweight, do it with an intermittent fast? Like how do you, what, or, or is that for everyone to say, hey, everyone should do an intermittent fast? Because I know you talk about the science of it gives, you know, there, there's, there's something about fasting which is rejuvenating to the body in terms of a maintenance function 
but yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, um, the, yeah, intermittent fasting. How do you use that? Yeah. So again, it really comes down to individualizing it for the person in front of me. So a couple of people that I would not use intermittent fasting with somebody who is already thin, certainly somebody who is underweight, I would never use fasting or intermittent fasting in that person. One of my goals with those people is to maintain or gain weight. And so, um, but they can still benefit from the ketogenic diet. So in those people, I'm going to encourage at least three meals a day, maybe even some snacks, high calorie, high fat. I want them gaining weight if possible. I'm going to appropriately figure out how much protein they need and can tolerate to maximize muscle mass and maximize muscle gain. Um, Young children who are growing or adolescents who are growing, as a rule of thumb, I'm not going to have them fasting. Women who are pregnant or breastfeeding, as a rule of thumb, should not be doing a ketogenic diet or doing fasting. Um, There can be exceptions to that in extreme cases. Those people need to work with medical professionals who really know what they're doing because you should not be fasting or on a fasting mimicking diet if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. That's just the general rule of thumb. So those groups of people, but you know, the majority of human beings on the planet now are overweight or obese. So uh, with those people, I'm absolutely positively going to use fasting and intermittent fasting if possible. Mm-hmm. The rule of thumb that I give is eat when you're hungry early on, they're going to be eating a lot. So I'm going to let them eat as much as they want, um, but ketogenic foods. So I'm going to encourage them in the first several weeks, usually eat a lot. Once they get into ketosis, their appetite will usually plummet. That's when we might be able to use fasting and intermittent fasting. And what I'll tell them is I don't want you to eat if you're not hungry. So especially if weight loss is one of our goals. So if they wake up in the morning and they're like, I'm not hungry at all, I'm going to say, don't eat then. I don't want you to have breakfast. I don't want you to have anything. Um, Just skip a meal and that's called intermittent fasting and great. Then eat when you're hungry. If that's lunch or dinner, then go ahead and eat. And uh, we do that. That's a way to increase ketones faster. It's a way to accelerate weight loss. So we get all sorts of benefits. I'm going to be mindful of our time because I know we've got a wrap soon, but I, I want to just say doing this, these kind of diets can be really challenging. Do you have a recommended resource or like a, maybe an online distributor who, who your patients use, maybe if they have a national reach or at least local reaches, any groups um, where they could ship the food to their door, make it as painless as possible for the patients? The best, the best resources I'm going to give are the charliefoundation.org, um, Matthew's Friends, which is based out of the UK. Those are two organizations focused on the medical versions of the ketogenic diet for brain and neurological disorders. So I am a physician using this for serious treat, treatment of serious brain and neurological conditions. There are 
thousands of resources if you would just want to lose a few pounds or if you want to do keto for diabetes or other things. And people need different versions of the diet, but I'm going to refer people. I'm going to assume your audience is really interested in using this for brain problems or brain symptoms or nerve symptoms. And uh, so I want them to get the best, most accurate medically evidenced information for how to do the medical version of this diet. Yeah, no, I'll be, I'll be using it. So I'm going to stop the recording now and just quickly say thank you. Um. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.